Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This ends the reading of communique number one from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. And with that announcement, the world learned of the Allied landings on continental Europe on June 6, 1944, D-Day. Seventy years later, we look back upon that day. This is Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are your retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And this is an epic event that we are commemorating 70 years later, the landing of the D-Day troops on Europe, spelling the end for, for Germany. This is one of those topics that we cover once in a while on our program. It's not precisely a baby boomer topic per se, but uh, as we've had in the past, we've talked about Titanic, we've talked about Pearl Harbor, and this is one of those events that we do want to commemorate because of the 70th anniversary of this event and because World War II did, in some ways, lead into the proliferation of baby boomers that were to follow in the years to come. This was a monumental event in that time period, Operation Overlord, the landing of the troops on D-Day to liberate Europe from the Nazi tyranny, which had been holding it for so many years. Let's begin first by sort of looking at the status of what was going on at that time period, the war up to that time. And Mike B., let's have you uh, give us some thoughts. And of course, George and I will be jumping in here. We'll all jump in back and forth, uh, sort of sharing about what we what we know about the war up to that time. Well, thank you, Smitty. And in that time, uh, every country was affected. Every corner of the globe was involved to some degree, from the North Pole to the South Pole and every hemisphere. There was war, a talk of war. There was threats. Uh, home here in, in the United States, there were blackouts. There were air raid drills, air raid tests, and actually, to some degree, there were actually attacks on American soil. Both sides in, in this war knew that we were coming. The Germans in Europe knew we were coming, and we knew we were going. The question was when, where, and how. The Germans, who, uh, as history books will attest to, uh, did a lightning flash through Europe and basically controlled all of Europe and most of Africa and most of uh, Eastern Europe in 1944. And the Germans knew that it was just a matter of time before the Americans would cross over and it would really get going in Europe. It was a time of angst. It was a time of, of intrigue. It was a time of total and utter secrecy. War up to the time, there was the North Africa campaign. Uh, American forces were in Italy. Uh, we were going full strength in the South Pacific, but and the Germans referred to it in history books uh, in, in the annals of time as Fortress Europe. Uh, Hitler felt that Europe would not be penetrated, that at any cost the Germans would control Europe for a thousand years to come. Well, we had different ideas. We had some fellows by the name of Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin, who strongly disagreed with uh, Mr. Hitler's philosophy to the point where 
we weren't really close friends, all of us, with the Russians and the British, but we got along. Well, suddenly overnight, we had to become very good friends because our lives were at stake, the lives of, of our citizens and our freedoms were at stake. So with Winston Churchill and FDR and Joseph Stalin all trying to figure out how to get into Europe and, and get moving on this war came a plan to invade Europe known as the D-Day invasion. And again, as I said earlier, the Germans knew we were coming, but they weren't quite sure when and qu weren't quite sure where. Do you imagine the biggest secret probably of the 20th century a lid kept on that secret for as long as they were able to keep it. And George will go into some of the meteorological issues involved. And, of course, Smitty, you'll talk about some of the logistic issues. But talking about a war where you know it's inevitable that millions of people are going to be involved based on a decision was probably one of the most incredible decisions that ever had to be made. And it was placed, that decision was placed in the hands of one man, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Smitty. Exactly. Probably one of the most famous military generals and definitely statesman of, of definitely of American history and probably on, military, on a military level of all time, George. What I was going to mention here is that there is something that comes to mind that would be of great interest to our audience, and that is when we think about the leaders at that time, primarily Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, that if you read Pulitzer Prize-winning author Doris Kern Goodwin's book titled No Ordinary Time, she mentions with crystal clarity that Winston Churchill literally spent months at a time living in the White House and on a day-to-day -day basis conferring with Mr. Roosevelt on a person-to-person -person basis, face-to-face, -face, contemplating and developing the strategy that eventually led to D-Day and, of course, as you correctly noted, uh, was in the hands of General Eisenhower to make that decision. But what is so interesting about that is that uh, Ms. Goodwin points out, and she describes it with such a vivid uh, clarity that you feel like you're right there, that Winston Churchill would be sitting in the bathtub smoking his famous cigars, and Roosevelt was in his wheelchair rolling up, and here they are, they're hatching out strategy, that will impact millions of lives. It will have an impact on the course of history, not just for decades, but perhaps for centuries to come. And all of this was going on at the time, and it was behind the scenes. And it shows uh, what the dire circumstances of the time required to do. And a lot of people aren't aware about that uh, relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt uh, took on a very personal characteristic that led to this uh, association. I've read that book, George. In fact, more than once. It's a fascinating book, No Ordinary Time, and I would recommend it to any of our of our listeners. But it, Mike, as Mike alluded, yes, uh, they knew, everybody knew, that an invasion was coming. An, an invasion was inevitable. Uh, an invasion across the English Channel. The Germans expected the invasion to happen at the Pas de Calais, which was the shortest distance between Great Britain and Europe, Hitler was almost obsessed with the fact that the invasion was going to happen there. The Allies opted to land in Normandy, which was of a greater distance, but was a broader area in terms of landing and making the logistics. This huge armada, uh, George and Mike, of uh, almost 5,000 ships in the armada, 200,000 soldiers, sailors, and coast guardmen. And to, to think, uh, what Mike mentioned earlier, that uh, to keep a lid on this, all these people had to keep this a secret. This is a secret mission. And to imagine that everybody cooperated and kept 
the lid on things was amazing. It's interesting that 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 it was pulled off really without much of a German um, reaction. To be honest, they did face quite a bit of uh, difficulty when they landed in Normandy, but it could have been much worse than what it was. America was known as the arsenal of democracy, to borrow the words from Alistair Cook. And as the arsenal of democracy, we were going to marshal all of our resources uh, that were made uh, available to us, and that included uniting with our allies in one concerted effort to stand strong against the forces of evil and tyranny. And I think that this is something that we need to remember uh, about D-Day, is that this was the time that people of this generation saved the world from tyranny. That's what D-Day represents. My father, who at that time was growing up in Greece, remembers with crystal clarity knowing that the Americans and the Allied forces were going to be coming, and they were looking forward to that day because that day would mark liberation and the removal of the yoke of tyranny that had been placed upon the backs and necks of uh, so many people on the European continent. Well, and economically, too, uh, America was, uh, was coming out of the Great Depression. And from an economic standpoint, well, we were already at war. But I think our government knew that it was just a matter of how long it would take, but we were going to win this war. And there was, I think, geopolitical issues involved, George. Uh, Stalin, I think he was almost like a, a distant cousin that you always have to have over at Thanksgiving and be nice to. But you're so happy when that cousin leaves after Thanksgiving and you get the deodorant for the room and, and you change the, uh, you know, you change the slipcovers on the couch. Uh, we sometimes don't think of the Eastern Front, the war that, that swept through through our ancestors, uh, you know, our, our countries of origin, Greece, Yugoslavia, the partisan effort. There were so many people and so much at stake geographically and politically and even the human condition, so much at stake riding on the success of this invasion to get military forces into Europe and get moving and, and get these maniacs out of business. And having said that, uh, we had, when I say economically and politically, we had folks, we had moms and sisters and, and disabled uncles and and fathers, grandfathers who, who weren't able to serve in a military capacity, working long hours everywhere from raising crops to working in factories. So my point is everybody was on board, not just everybody in America, but everybody in the world, especially on the occupied sides, we talk about Greece, and, and I remember talks by my grandfather talking about the partisan effort. So there's a lot of at stake, a lot riding in in the hands and the mind of General Eisenhower, and we'll talk a little more about that as we go further deeper into this D-Day special, June 6th, 1944, 70 That's years. Absolutely right, Mike. And what we want to do right now is we want to put you sort of in the in the mood to get a feel of what was happening at that time period. Now, we began our show with the official bulletin from Chafe, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces in London, announcing the official bulletin that the D-Day invasion had started. But let's play for you right now some radio clips that we want to share with you. The first one is from CBS, and this is prior to the official 
announcement from D-Day when at first uh, the first bulletins came actually from Germany. And so there was some doubt as to their legitimacy, if they were a political move, a propaganda move. Let's play for you right now the first bulletin heard about uh, sometime in the uh, in the early morning of June 6, 1944, Eastern Time. Uh, and let's listen to that so you can get a flavor of what was happening and what Americans at home were listening to on the radio. The Allied invasion has started. The news to this moment is all supplied by the enemy. The Germans, through the Berlin radio, tell us that the invasion, that's the enemy's word for it, has started. There is no Allied contribution. Shortly after 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Columbia's shortwave listening station heard the Berlin radio make this announcement. Quote, Here is a special bulletin. Early this morning, the long-awaited British and American invasion began when paratroops landed in the area of the Somme estuary. The harbor of La Arve, the Berlin broadcast went on, is being fiercely bombarded at the present moment. Naval forces of the German Navy are off the coast fighting with enemy landing vessels. We have just brought you a special bulletin. End quote. That was a German radio bulletin we repeated for you. It was heard by Columbia's shortwave listening station at the beginning of Berlin's 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime news broadcast to North America. It was repeated in the middle of the program, and there is no confirmation from any allied source. In fact, the War Department in Washington says it has absolutely no information on these German radio reports. Here is a bulletin from London. Shortly before 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime, the BBC broadcast the Allied High Command's urgent instructions to Holland, advising all people living within 18 miles of the coast to leave their homes immediately and also to keep off roads, railways, and bridges. This may have been another of the series of instructions the Allied High Command has given the people of Europe. Please remember two things. Prime Minister Churchill has warned us that there will be many allied feints, deceptive moves. And we've also been told to expect an invasion story similar to that we're now relaying to you from the Germans. In this way, the Nazis might hope to make the patriots in the conquered countries reveal themselves and thus reduce the effectiveness of these groups when our landing does actually start. The German agency DNB says Dunkirk and Calais, just across the Channel coast from Britain, are under attack by strong formations of bombers. Transocean said the long-expected invasion by the British and Americans was begun in the first hours of the morning of June 6th by the landing of parachute troops in the area of the mouth of the Somme. Allied headquarters remained silent. The German DNB agency said La Arve was being violently bombarded at the present moment. That was at 7 a.m. German time or at 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime. Please remember that the War Department in Washington has no information on these German reports. Although there is no reason to believe the enemy report, CBS will remain in operation overtime tonight until the facts are known. We repeat, this network will operate beyond regular time until the German report has been verified or has been proved erroneous. Erwin Darlington reporting for CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that was the first bulletin that Americans heard on CBS where they weren't sure yet because, again, the first sources of the information were the Germans. And, of course, they were well known for 
putting out propaganda. Now, in the course of, of that of those early morning hours, uh, this was obviously after 1 a.m., we heard the bulletin from Shafe, which I quoted earlier, which you heard at the very beginning of our program. Let's listen to another clip now, uh, again from CBS with Robert Trout. This came right after the uh, bulletin from Shafe, just to give you a feel for what was going on, how radio was reporting the news. Again, radio, the dominant medium at that time period, which had done an outstanding job of bringing the news to the, of the war to the American public, now continued uh, to give everyone the news on D-Day. So here's the next clip we have for you with Robert Trout and CBS. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back at Columbia's news headquarters, the newsroom in New York. I've just taken the microphone out of the studio again and back into our news headquarters. You have just heard from London, Colonel R. Ernest Dupuy of the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, reading Communique Number 1. Everything to this point has been German reports, and Communique Number 1 now says, under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. It is now official. The landings have begun. Uh, rather strangely, you know, just before we switched to London to hear the first communique, we were making this uh, informal tour of the Columbia newsroom, which began at 3 o'clock in the morning, 35 minutes ago. I was standing here in front of the OWI machine and telling you that while all the other news services, the UP, AP, INS, Reuters, all the rest, were sending out all these reports and from uh, Europe, you know, about the German reports, the OWI, which uh, confines itself to official news, sends us the text of the communiques and all that sort of thing. The OWI was printing almost nothing, and uh, since the beginning of the day, since midnight, the OWI had put on only one bulletin, or rather one uh, dispatch of any kind, saying that the Romanian radio reported enemy planes over Belgrade. And of course, at that moment, uh, after I came out of the studio on the OWI machine, here is what is now printed. OWI 2, meaning the second bulletin since midnight. OWI 2, flash. Supreme Headquarters announces Allies begin operations on northern coast of France. 3.34 p.m. Eastern wartime from Washington. That's what the Office of War Information wire says. Uh, still uh, looking over the machines now in a way is rather speculative. The, the whole character of this broadcast has changed, and it did change rather abrupt, abruptly. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, if you have been uh, staying with us, you know we started... Uh, Oh, sometime uh, after midnight, I guess it was about 20 minutes to 1 in the morning Eastern wartime when the Germans began putting these reports out. We've been bringing you frequent reports. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, a little more than 35 minutes ago, we took this microphone here in our studio, which adjoins the Columbia Newsroom in New York, and uh, brought it out here to the news machines and began taking you on an informal tour to show you what a newsroom is like at this hour. And then, of course, was Robert Trout from CBS News uh, talking about the bulletins coming in, doing a very, very uh, live and lively and active report from the CBS Newsroom. We're going to continue to play a couple more clips for you, and then we're going to get back to our general conversation here as we remember the 70th anniversary of D-Day. In a program like this, we can only bring you a small fraction of the reports and programming of that day. Radio uh, did a fantastic job of communicating the news. Later on that evening uh, of June 6, they were beginning to feed a lot of the uh, of the previously recorded uh, uh, reports. This is D-Day was one of the first instances where they were allowed to use recordings. At that time, radio had uh, a very strict rule that everything was live. But in this case, they were using 
very primitive tape machines, wire recorders in some instances that the reporters were taking out actually into the battlefield of D-Day. And uh, they were feeding the reports from uh, London uh, via shortwave radio. The networks in the United States were picking these up on big commercial shortwave receivers and either recording them or feeding them into the network uh, as they were coming. So uh, a very interesting use of shortwave radio for communicating the news from from Great Britain. Here's a very brief excerpt of one of the best actuality reports that was filed that day by George Hicks of the Blue Network. Uh, Just a very brief clip of him on the beaches at D-Day witnessing some of the landing of some of the craft and some of the uh, firing towards some of the German craft that were in the skies. Just to give you a very brief example of this, here's George Hicks. George Hicks from the Blue Network, as he described some of the action on the beaches of Normandy that uh, that June 6th. By the way, there was a concept that all four American radio networks of that time employed during the D-Day broadcast, and that was the concept of pool reporting, where they would each take their reporters and the news feeds that they were getting, and they would share them amongst all four networks. The reason for this was to disseminate the information as quickly as possible so that everyone could hear the bulletins coming in, because this was not a time really of competing with each other in a network phase. The The real goal here was to provide information to the American public. The last clip that we have for you is that of that night, President Roosevelt led the nation in prayer, and which was something that was very unique and uh, very, very moving. We have a brief excerpt from President Roosevelt's prayer, D-Day prayer, uh, to the nation that was broadcast that night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time after the entire the day had been full of reports and, and news coming from Europe. Let's listen to this excerpt of President Roosevelt and his D-Day prayer. Almighty God... Our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, Our sons will triumph. 
They will be sore cried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and an excerpt from the D-Day prayer, and uh, no one knew at that time, of course, but within the year, FDR would also pass away in April of 1945. George, you and I have uh, have talked a little bit uh, in the past uh, about the fact that um, this was a very prayerful time. Uh, America was a different place. We we openly prayed. We asked God for his intercession during this crisis and to guide us through to victory. And this D-Day prayer that President Roosevelt read was uh, certainly a, a good example of that. Very much so. This was not an era of political correctness. All of us were united in prayer with the understanding that we were up against the very face of evil itself. And this was a time to put aside partisanship feelings. It was a time in which one had to exercise everything to the best of your strength and your ability, but ultimately put your faith in God and ask for the Almighty's intercessions to help you fulfill your plans and expectations in accordance with his will. And certainly, President Roosevelt expressed this very eloquently and sincerely uh, in this most uh, profoundly moving prayer. Yes, he did, and it's certainly something that uh, we would would be wonderful to see nowadays, but sadly, you probably would not uh, really see something like this today. And not only that, but I recall from what my mother has told me, as well as my uncle uh, from New York City had said, that uh, churches were always open uh, throughout the week at all times, and that people were encouraged to go in to light candles, to offer prayers of intercessory support for our men and women who are fighting overseas, as well as for all of the Allied forces, and to pray uh, that God's will be done and that our forces would be victorious. Absolutely. George, you have some interesting information to share with us regarding some astronomical connections to D-Day. And we'll talk a little bit about weather and about some other things, too. But why don't you lead us into that subtopic? Well, Gilbert, this is something that we had covered earlier with the Titanic programs that we did. And that is we have an opportunity to use astronomy to get a better understanding about the events in history, including military history, and based upon the wonderful book titled Celestial Sleuth by Donald Olson, we can actually answer some very interesting questions revolving around D-Day. Why did we select June 6, 1944? Uh, Did we want to have a full moon, or did we want to have a new moon? How important was the tidal action in terms of rising and falling tides? How did this come into play? These are just but a few of the questions that can be answered by looking at it through an astronomical prism, so to speak. And what I did here was I had an opportunity to review some of the journals of General Eisenhower, General Montgomery, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, also General Chester Nimitz, and uh, General Omar Bradley, excuse me, Admiral Nimitz. And what we learn from all of them is the following. First of all, The months of May and June were originally chosen with the idea that it would allow ample time for Allied forces to gain momentum through the summer months before bad weather would slow down the progress of forces. Then we find out that 
General Eisenhower determined that it was not going to be in May because we were not ready yet. Our forces had not yet been properly prepared. So then it was determined to zero in on June. And specifically, we were looking at June 5th, 6th, and 7th. And originally, the general selected June 5th, but because of very bad weather, it was determined to go at June 6th. And what's interesting is that that was not the optimal time, but what it did offer was that it offered an opportunity for our airborne divisions to parachute in under the light of full moon light. And that provided them an ample opportunity to clearly see the terrain that they were dropping into below so that they could make the initial strike. Also, they had to bring the armada during a period of high tide and then at the same time bring it in at a point that the tide would drop down so that demolition teams could come in to remove the series of 16 different obstacles that had been placed along the areas where the Allies had chosen to land. And what we come to find out in reading the composites of these diaries, especially that of Winston Churchill, is that the challenge was the tidal action. That was really very, very significant here. That what occurred was that the tidal action was different on the western side versus the eastern side. And the difference was as much as 40 minutes. The Allies originally thought that they could accomplish the removal of all of those obstacles within 30, perhaps 40 minutes. It turned out not to be the case. And the reason for that was that they underestimated or miscalculated how fast the tide would rise. It turned out, but looking back through the astronomical prism that uh, Professor Olson has done here, that in point of fact, the tide was falling at a much uh, slower rate when it was going from high tide to low tide. But when it got to low tide and then started to rise back to high tide, it was moving at a much faster rate. And in fact... Uh, a difference of a few minutes made all the difference in terms of how many battalions could be deployed and ultimately how many obstacles could be removed. It turns out that the tide was rising at a rate of over one foot every 10 minutes, and then it accelerated. Originally, they thought it would be like one foot every 15 minutes. So what did that mean? Bottom line, only five of the 16 obstacles were removed. But they had to be careful because if they waited too long, then the ships would strike against that and there were mines attached to it. So it ended up being a very bloody and difficult mess, primarily because the action of the tides uh, were underestimated by our forces. And as a result of that, we weren't able to remove all the obstacles. We made the landing because it was not so much the best time, it was the least worst. Because by doing so on June 7th, we would have lost all of the advantage. So, as an old expression, you know, you have to just take the circumstances as they are given, and you have to do the best you can, and that's what our Allied forces were able to do. George, does your research indicate that there is what we call in Southern California also a riptide? It was not so much a a riptide Mm. as it was that the level was rising so quickly. And so what happened, as the level was coming up, the obstacles were being covered. And so they ah. could not get in to, to set their demolition in time. And it was thought that they could accomplish it all within 30 to 40 minutes. But what happened was that the tide was rising so much faster than they thought that uh, even though that they landed on time, they weren't able to accomplish it. Yeah, because in some of the research, and even Smitty and I were talking before the show, some of the books we've read and some of the research I've done indicated that a lot of the troops were pulled down under 
underwater because they were weighted down and couldn't release their packs, but they said that in addition to the fact that there was a current because of the tide activity that was pulling against them, working against them, mm-hmm. which in turn, I'm sure by gravity and inertia, wouldn't allow them to release their heavy packs yes. to get up to the surface. So I was wondering if, if well, not only the moon phase and the tide phase, but the undercurrent as well. The It wasn't so much the undercurrent as much as it was the fact that the level and and how fast that level was rising. It was, it was absolutely overwhelming. Uh, for the uh, demolition teams that were there. And suddenly they realized they weren't going to be able to accomplish what they had hoped to do. And it's interesting, George, that uh, so many uh, servicemen did perish in uh, what seems to be uh, just a a ridiculous amount of water, just two or three feet of water. Some of them actually drowned because they were carrying extremely heavy packs of equipment, radio equipment, uh, armaments, and if they didn't get their footing, if they didn't land correctly, they would fall and they couldn't get up and they would actually drown in just a couple of feet of water, which is very, very sad. But the Germans had put up all these fortifications, all these things along uh, uh, the Normandy beaches. They were mined. There was It was not an easy operation by any stretch of the imagination. And when the troops began landing on Normandy, they were taking fire from the from the Germans that were up on the cliffs in the uh, in the uh, battery boxes and the pillboxes up there that were firing at them. So not only were they facing uh, the currents and the uh, carrying all these heavy things, they were also seasick. They were also very tense. They were scared. They were taking fire. Each and every one of these men that landed there, whether they lost their lives there, whether they came back to to the United States uh, or to Great Britain or Canada, were all heroes. Very much so. We look at these obstacles, and they are titled stakes, ramps, hedgehogs, tetrahedrons, Belgian gates. These were formidable obstacles, stakes that were, you know, deeply buried in the sand, slanting seaward with mines attached to them, timbers sloping upward towards the shore with supports the shape of an inverted V, making an incline that would force the landing craft to slide up and to get caught. It was uh, an extraordinary amount of chaos occurring, you know, within a compressed time frame. And as you correctly noted, uh, you know, the the adverse conditions there made it even more so. Right. And I think you worded it very well, George, when you called it the, the least worst time to land, because they had originally, as you had mentioned, scheduled the landing for June 5th. Unfavorable weather conditions caused the Allied Supreme Commander, General Eisenhower, to postpone the invasion by 24 hours. And the only viable days for invasion in June, as we had said, were June 5th, 6th, and 7th. Uh, good weather, uh, a late rising moon, and shortly after dawn, a low tide were the desired things that were wanted. You know, the invasion fleet, much of it had already left England on June 5th for the invasion, but they were recalled back to England when it was canceled. Uh, gradual clearing in the channel predicted for the morning of June 6th, the barely tolerable period of fair conditions from, from minimal for just over 24 hours that would allow the, uh, the landing. And again, General Eisenhower gave the decision to go on June 6th after meeting with staff officers, even though the weather conditions were far from ideal. What's so interesting about this is that when we think about the invasion of Normandy, and I alluded to this earlier, it wasn't just so much landing by sea. It was also parachuting in from the air. Yes. 
You know, if we look here, for example, at Brigadier General James Gavin of the 82nd Airborne Division, in his personal journal, he notes the significance about why it was important for them to parachute when they did to get the benefit of full moonlight. He says here that the roads and the small clusters of houses in the Normandy villages stood out sharply in the moonlight, and it therefore enabled them to be able to land and to be able to deploy their forces and to accomplish their military objectives. And quite a debate, too, in my research, which revealed that the air forces, uh, the Allied air forces, were in debate with the ground force planners because the the Air Corps guys wanted the moonlight to give them a better target. Then they wanted some daylight before the first men stormed the beaches so they could maximize their bombing runs. Now, you wonder, had they gotten their way, obviously they didn't, if there would have been less casualties. And, and history is a game of ifs and what ifs. But had the Air Forces got their way, they would have gotten some daylight to pinpoint a little better in their strafing and bombing runs, possibly could have uh, could have downsized the number of casualties, probably not. It's all relegated and secreted to the uh, the history books for now, 70 years later. I want to share something with you from Colonel Edward Shames, U.S. Army retired. Uh, Colonel Shames uh, is a member of the Band of Brothers. He was the first soldier to be awarded a battlefield commission at Normandy. And this is what he writes about landing at Normandy. He said here, It has been nearly seven decades, but when I hear someone say D-Day, I can still feel my stomach lurch up into my throat, just as it did that day when I jumped out of my plane and parachuted through a maelstrom of German bullets. Can you imagine, gentlemen, having to cast your fate literally into the wind, and then you have to go through a hail of bullets? It's absolutely mind-boggling to think of the bravery and the courage of all of these men who were able to take this effort and to do so for love of country, for love of freedom to defend liberty against the forces of tyranny. It's very moving, George, to when you stop and think of the sacrifices, and so many of them did pass away. They did lose their lives in those landings, uh, either the ones that were coming up on the beaches or, as you mentioned, the other phase of this operation, Operation Overlord, was the paratroopers who did land, and many of them perished. Uh, The Germans had flooded large areas of Normandy in and around the uh, towns and uh, within certain amount of miles from the beaches to thwart the attempt of uh, any paratroopers. And again, many paratroopers also drowned in that uh, in those uh, uh, areas that had been flooded with uh, with water again they were weighed down with a lot of equipment and a lot of uh, a lot of armaments and a lot of them lost their lives as they were Saint uh, Saint Mary Eglise yes, became Mary Eglise. the first village liberated in France and it was liberated by these airborne troops and uh, there is a remarkable stained glass window in the church uh, of Saint Mary Eglise that depicts the Allied airborne troops on either side of the Virgin Mary. And in fact, there's a dedication there that reads, to the memory of those who by their courage and by their sacrifice liberated St. Mary Eglise and France. And if you look there at the church, there is still a mannequin with a parachute attached to it that is still hanging there. And that's, of course, uh, Private John Steele, who was snagged on the church, and he was left suspended there for several hours, and he survived 
by yeah. pretending to be dead. I believe this was depicted uh, in the movie The Longest Day. Yes, it was. Well, the landings continued, and we did find success at a high cost, but the, the landings did help to liberate France. A great number of the German command was not there. They did not believe. They were adamant that the landings were not going to happen because of the bad weather. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, who was the commander-in-chief of Army Group B, left for Germany. He wasn't even there. There were many uh, other commanders who had left for some exercises, some field exercises, all believing that the landings would not take place for at least a couple of weeks. Any thoughts on the aftermath of D-Day and how we eventually made our way in and eventually liberated France and liberated Europe? Well, in addition to that very focused comment there, Gilbert, you know what? Hitler had a big hand in in being asleep, literally Literally, yes, you're right. He was asleep, and we talk about moon phases and tides. Hitler was a stargazer. He was a... (laughs) He made a lot of his decisions based on stars. Astrology, as we all know, and, and some to some degree black magic, some cultism. Uh, he told his generals, and basically, I think there were generals who called up reserves, and Hitler, no, we don't want to wake him up. Even, I think, after the invasion was reported, I think maybe some of the generals were in disbelief. I've got a personal feeling, based on my re- research, they didn't want to be the guy that went knocking on the door where Hitler was sleeping to tell him that Fortress Europe uh, is now under siege or the the Allied troops have landed. Whatever case may be, there were very, very crucial hours that were wasted because uh, Wehrmacht, German army reinforcements, and Luftwaffe were not put into place because Hitler had the sole and total and supreme authority to either allow or disallow movement of forces. George? And this, of course, shows the downside of command and control, that you have to be able to have trust in your generals who are in the field and to defer to them, which obviously didn't occur here. I thought it would be important to mention here that when we commemorate and we reflect the enormous sacrifice that occurred on June 6, 1944, that the end of the war in Europe was one year away, and that we forget that there was still more bloody conflicts that followed. In fact, again, to quote from Colonel Edward Shames, who I referenced earlier, he noted the following. He said, when I hear the word Boston, I swear that my feet literally freeze up as I remember the bitter cold and the booming artillery fire. Baby boomers, that's in reference to a famous battle that was made into a famous motion picture mm. titled The Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. Yes. And it was a very bloody conflict that resulted in enormous loss of life and casualties on both sides, and yet that occurred well after D-Day. And yet there's one more that has to be mentioned, again, from Colonel Shames. He writes here, Whenever someone mentions the word Dachau, My heart still sinks down to the bottoms of my feet as I remember being the first American officer to enter that concentration camp and see the horror and evil that we were fighting. And yet we, of course, remember the horror and evil that we saw on the beaches of Normandy, and yet there was more to come. We are going to talk about two of the more memorable historic big-screen depictions 
of this known as the longest day. Uh, we mentioned about Hitler and Hitler's generals, our own dear General Eisenhower, as we talked in a pre-production meeting, had already written a, a news release or script or speech or whatnot, taking full responsibility and blame for the failure of the Normandy invasion. So he wasn't so sure about it either. I don't think anybody was sure about it. Uh, and in following up on some of your quotes, George, which were just excellent and right on point, I remember in our research, Smitty, and I forgot who made the statement. It could have been Churchill, but they asked him, is, is this the beginning of the end? And Churchill replied, no, it's the end of the beginning. And you think about it, it's a very cerebral statement, but you think about it, it's the end of the beginning, the beginning of taking taking this stranglehold that the Nazis had on Europe and, for that matter, many parts of the rest of the world, and not to mention the Japanese and the Pacific, but it was the end of the beginning. We got the momentum, we got up to bat, and fortunately enough, we socked a home run, and I think the morale, even in the home, the home front, and around the world, we're coming. We got on board, and we're moving now. Just the morale booster of that very important day. I think when we reflect upon that time, and you aptly quoted Winston Churchill, remarking, this is you know the uh, end of the beginning, that how prescient he was, that in looking at it that way, that he talked about the long struggle that lay ahead. And actually, it was Churchill himself that came up with the expression about the Cold War, it which, was. of course, occurred in the aftermath of World War II. And while we focus here on, on D-Day, it's a reminder to us that the struggle for liberty and freedom against the forces of tyranny and evil never really ends. George, it seems to me that the Germans just made so many stupid mistakes. It almost seems like a it almost seems to me like divine intervention that all these things that happened that uh, were almost unbelievable, the, the blunders that they made, which allowed us, the United States, the British, the French, to prevail in the invasion of, uh, of Europe. I'm reminded of something that comes both from my clergy training, but also I believe it, it was uh, something that was uh, part of the movie The Longest Day. And that is the question often comes about, gee, I wonder whose side God is on. But Absolutely. The, but the that, real yes. issue is, are we on God's side? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the real question here. And we have been endowed with inalienable human rights of liberty and of freedom. You know, God created us to be free-thinking, liberty-loving people. And... With that in mind, because we have that, we have to remember that, that with that liberty, with that freedom comes a great deal of responsibility, that we know that that is a gift that comes to us from God. It is not something that is granted by another human being. And I think regardless of where you are on the spiritual spectrum or the religious side, I think your point, Gilbert, is very well taken here, that ultimately... The, you know, the forces of, of good will triumph over evil, but we have to remember that evil is very, very powerful, and it requires a commitment to stand firm in the face of that, because, you know, when one makes a concession to that, 
uh, one releases, you know, the floodgates of tyranny. And perhaps if we, when we look back on the origins of World War II, we see that's what happened. As Mike correctly noted, how quickly Europe was gobbled up by Hitler. And you think of the United States uh, and America, the, the various religions, the creeds, the cultures, everybody went aboard, everybody came aboard that beach on D-Day. It didn't matter if you were a Catholic or Jewish or a Baptist or you were Italian or Greek-American or Polish. You went aboard. You went up on that shore, and with that horrendous machine gun fire, those 88-millimeter cannon shells dropping on top of you, seeing your buddies just disintegrated, and you were Americans. It was as Tom Brokaw so clearly referenced, it was the greatest generation. And Smitty and I were talking before production, it was also the bravest generation, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely, Mike. It most certainly Everything was. Everything was at stake. And that's, and that's one of the, the blessings that we have uh, with our you know, wonderful uh, cinema industry, is that we have an opportunity to see this and witness it on the big screen. In, you know, in 1962, we saw an all-star film based on the book by the same title, The Longest Day. And it featured such wonderful actors as John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum, Sal Mineo, Jeffrey Hunter, and a host of other stars. And they, of course, showed what it was like to be involved in such a dangerous but somewhat uh, orderly invasion. And yet we know that there was chaotic events surrounding them. And the focus of the of that particular film was on the historic event itself, the heroism that was made. And what is heroism, gentlemen? Heroism is superlative courage displayed in the face of great adversity. And that's what's demonstrated uh, in the film The Longest Day. We see these decisions being made, not capriciously, but with angst, with doubt, but ultimately putting it uh, into the hands of God, that this is what we are called to do, this is what we are going to to do and move forward. And there was obviously an emphasis on self-sacrifice. There's not a great deal of introspection in these films, and in this particular film. And I think it's, it's uh, evident, again, reflecting that films that tend to be made in close proximity, time-wise, to when the event occurs, tend to focus on the historic event itself. They tend to focus on the heroic actions. But with the passage of time, we have an opportunity to explore the other aspect, and that is it's not just always a question of heroism, but when you're in the line of fire, it is a question of survival. In other words, when you get down at that operating level, in the foxhole, so to speak, or in this case, on the beach, that it is really more about taking care of your buddy who is right next to you there, taking care of of your comrades. And I think that this is what was so vividly depicted Uh, in the film titled Saving Private Ryan, in which there was a very graphic portrayal as to what was going on at D-Day. And to a a greater extent, there was also a look at the psychological side, the behavioral side. And it's not to say that one film is better than the other, but it allows us to explore multidimensional elements that are involved in such a conflict. There are acts of heroism. There are acts of survival. It's not pretty. It is graphic. And, of course, in deference to 
our greatest generation, and it's been found when I've been doing my research, I think you maybe you two have experienced the same thing, a lot of people associated with this generation don't really like to talk about it. Uh, they, it, it's a very, very private, private uh, uh, matter. I remember reading about the great baseball star, Gil Hodges, who we've talked about in previous episodes here from the Dodgers. He was a hero in World War II. He never talked about his service other than just to acknowledge the events that occurred and having participated in them. And I think that uh, this is interesting that, you know, we as baby boomers have come to appreciate you know, through the passage of time, a deeper reflection on what has occurred here. We remember the historic events, we remember the heroic acts, but we also understand what underlies that. You're right, George. Ultimately, this is a human story, and this is a story of of men sacrificing their lives, of risking their, their lives to liberate for a cause that they believed in, and ultimately... Uh, Many of them did leave their lives on those shores and on the continent of Europe. Uh, getting back briefly to the motion pictures, uh, The Longest Day is one of my favorite motion pictures. I must have seen it at least a dozen times, maybe even like 15 times or so. And I'm always, and I have seen Saving Private Ryan, and the comparison is that The Longest Day is um, definitely more of a, uh, a study in, um, in the reactions of the of the men involved, uh, looking at the psychological side of the decision making, the planning, the their thoughts, Saving Private Ryan, as you'd mentioned, is more, a very graphic motion picture, and I think that also reflects on the changes in the motion picture industry from 1962 to the time that that uh, Saving Private Ryan was uh, was filmed. But yet, both provide valuable perspective. Yes. But none provides the same perspective as when we have an opportunity to talk with those who are somehow connected with these events, either directly or indirectly. I know that uh, in talking with my father and with relatives uh, who still uh, reside in Greece, that there is a very solemn remembrance of the events that occurred, to know that the Allied forces had landed, to know that the Allies were successful, to know, as you correctly noted, Mike, that momentum had finally shifted, and that as a result of that, uh, that it it was uh, the beginning of the defeat of tyranny that had enslaved Europe for so long. And I remember seeing the film The Longest Day with my father and my mother. It was actually June of 1968, I recall. I was in elementary school at the time. And I remember how profoundly moved my father was. And my mom, who was born here, of course, in the United States, in Texas, you know, she had a different perspective. She graduated in 1944. And she remembered some of her classmates who uh, were upperclassmen that had graduated the year before who had participated in D-Day, some of whom never came home. And she had some of their dog tags and uh, letters and postcards from that era. And what we were reminded when we see a film like The Longest Day, and perhaps even more so with the uh, film uh, Saving Private Ryan, is that everyone has a story and that no life, gentlemen, no life, should pass away unnoticed. And so when we look across and we see the cemeteries that line the area of Normandy and elsewhere in that vicinity, we think about each one of those crosses represents a separate story. And you look at both both of the pictures side by side, The Longest Day, which is still, and, and probably 
for the next several decades will be known as Hollywood's definitive D-Day movie. Uh, but more of a modern account was given in Saving Private Ryan. You had a, a total shift in American social and taste mores between the time of, of The Longest Day and the time of Saving Private Ryan. One thing about The Longest Day that cannot really be said about Saving Private Ryan, Longest Day was one of those historical epics that showed every angle. I They showed behind the German lines, they showed... They showed the the, the French, French people, the yes. villagers, the underground. There are a lot of angles of the longest day. Private saving Private Ryan, on the other hand, basically showed the carnage and the evil and the gore and the pathos and the human emotion of what is war. Of course, with the longest day, it was a star-studded epic. Uh, big names. Every second of that movie, there was a big name in there. And it was uh, one of typical one of Daryl Zanuck's typical epics, as only Zanuck could do one, and probably his final epic. But moving fast forward to to Tom Hanks in producing Saving Private Ryan, it brought the earthiness and and the horror of war, as only color could do. Many many decades later, versus the black and white epic and the drama known as The Longest Day, Smitty. Exactly, Mike George. Well. We could go on for hours and hours talking about D-Day, but unfortunately our time has run out. But we did want to pay tribute to all of those who served, those who came back and those who did not return, and remember them on this 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings on Normandy. We would uh, very much like to hear from you. If you would like to drop us an email, our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com, and we have a Facebook page on on uh, on Facebook, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite, and of course, don't forget Mixcloud, mixcloud.com. Our programs are slowly migrating there. I want to thank my colleagues, Mike and George, for truly uh, an outstanding program. We hope that you've enjoyed it as we pay tribute on this 70th anniversary of D-Day. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we'll catch you next time, folks. Take care. We'll see you next time on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.